the reality, as you said, is that prisons and jails have become our default mental health institutions. The irony of this too, which very few people want to talk about, is that the remaining mental health institutions are really only just for forensic patients. They are in fact just jails. There are people who are there because of some criminal charge and can't be adjudicated in the courts because they have a mental illness and so they sit often for years and decades. Welcome to The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. On this podcast, we talk about how we can build health in America beyond medical care. Only 20% of overall health is determined by medical services. We are here to talk about the other 80%, housing, food, social connections, and how to move rapidly and equitably towards whole person health in this country. Mental health is one of the greatest health challenges and disparities we wrestle with in the U.S. today. Suicide rates increased 30% between 2000 and 2020. Mortality from drug overdoses increased almost five times in the same period. Statistically, someone living with a severe mental illness will die 10 to 20 years earlier than someone without. Patients with severe mental illness need new approaches to care that integrate evidence-based treatment with all the things we talk about on this podcast, safe and affordable housing, social connections, access to healthy food, and more. Instead, jails have become our default mental health institutions. Tom Insel is a great person to launch a conversation about an alternative path forward. For decades, Tom asked himself, why is mental health getting worse and worse while science and treatment options are getting better and better? That question has driven his work as director of NIMH, as the author of Healing, and now as co-founder of Vanna Health. His answer is both straightforward and surprisingly challenging to implement. People, place, and purpose. So please enjoy this conversation with mental health expert, author, and founder, Tom Insel. Well, listen, thank you for joining and welcome to The Other 80. I read your book and it was compelling on many levels. One of the most uh, sobering aspects was really some of the facts, some of the trend lines and facts around mental health in America today. And I wonder if you could share some of those basic, the kind of profile of where where we are, whether that's suicide rates of SMI, um, years of life lost, people in jail, things of that nature. So maybe just give us a, a kind of snapshot of the situation today, and then we'll dive into some of the solutions you outline. Sure. The facts aren't great here. It's not what you'd want. It's not the story you want to tell. Uh, On the morbidity side, uh, when you look at the increase in disability or what, you know, we now call disability adjusted life years, the area of behavioral health has has, has really taken off as the, probably the greatest increase and probably in some ways the greatest burden of morbidity um, of all medical causes in the United States. And, and the way that happens is partly because these are disorders that begin young. 
that usually we use the metric that 75% of serious mental illness or any mental illness begins by age 24. Very different than cancer, heart disease, diabetes, lots of other areas that are more the second half of life. Someone with a serious mental illness in the United States today is probably going to die 20 to 23 years before someone without. Um, That makes them, in terms of longevity, probably the greatest health disparity that we have in the United States far exceeds health disparities due to race or ethnicity. But beyond that, uh, other forms of mortality like suicide and drug overdoses, what we call the deaths of despair, have become uh, a massive public health issue, which was not that obvious 20, 23 years ago. Suicide rates are up about 30 to 35% from the turn of the century. The um, mortality from drug overdoses is up about five to six fold from that time. So these are huge increases. That's a crisis we need to start talking about. It's a public health issue that we need to put right in front of our agenda because this is our next generation or even the upcoming generation. These are our children and grandchildren, and um, they're not doing well by those measures of morbidity and mortality. This podcast focuses on something that is very core to your book, which is we believe about 20% of outcomes of health is based on medical care. And approximately 80% is due to other factors, people's environments, their social connections, the food they eat. And so these things get all nestled together in people's lives, but we've treated them like they're totally separate. There are a lot of threads to follow from what you just shared, but one of the things that was striking in the book are models that bring those factors together, that integrate the therapies and other mental health treatments with social support, integrate it with housing. So health homes is one of those models and you talk about others in the book, but we haven't yet seen any of those scale in the sense of something that's widely available across the nation. And I, I'd love to have you talk a little bit about what's it going to take to scale those kind of integrated packages of solutions in, the, in a similar way to what you described was the sort of integrated package for HIV or for cancer. How are we going to actually scale these things? Yeah, it's the right question, Claudia. It, it really is. I mean, I, I think this is really what was behind the book and what I've done since writing the book. So, you know, if when somebody asks me what the book is about, I say, well, it's really trying to push for a different model for healthcare to talk about recovery. And it defines recovery as the three P's, people, place, and purpose. So social support, environmental issues like you were just talking about, and and also purpose, work or passion or something that gets people out of the house and into uh, a mission that they care about. Those are really the keys for recovery. But none of that happens without a fourth P. And I don't think I understood that when I wrote the book. It's what I've been working on since finishing the book. And that fourth P is payment. So when you want to scale and when when you want to implement, you know, at NIH, we used to talk about this implementation gap. It's really a payment gap. In the United States, healthcare is a business. You want to change healthcare policy, you have to start changing the payment, what you pay for 
to the point of your podcast, you know, that's part of this 80%. The 20%, which is healthcare, is where all the money is going. So we're spending $4.3 trillion in the United States for that 20%. I think it's actually less than 20. And I think Don Berwick could agree with me, or Michael Marmot would say it's probably about 10%, gets the $4.3 trillion. That's almost, what, 19% of our GDP. When you look at all the other stuff, the stuff that we know works, we know is vital for recovery, we leave that to under-resourced nonprofits in the community who are basically depending on bake sales and charity. And one has to ask, is that really the right way forward? Now, we have a for-profit healthcare system for the most part, which is a business. And it's going to go where the returns are the best, which is like running an orthopedic service or having um, a very large inpatient facility that you can bill for or various, um, you know, GI outpatient facilities where you have lots of procedures that are incredibly, incredibly lucrative. If you or I were running the business, that's what we would do as well. And it actually works pretty well for providers, but it doesn't work really well for patients and families who need a whole different sort of infrastructure and and sort of services. So what we have basically is a sick care system, right? It's a system built around when people get sick, they can get intensive and extensive treatment, which is really expensive. That's the system we have. The system we need is a system that's really healthcare driven, that is, that's providing community resources like clubhouses, like coaching, like the kinds of things that you need to get to recover and begins to pay for that in a way that incentivizes us to scale it. We're not paying for that now. And until we do, it's not going to happen. So one of the roles that you've had in the last few years is advising Governor Newsom in our shared, uh, my one-time home state of California, on how to really make that happen, I, I, I would say. And a policy that has co- rolled out since you're advising w- is CalAIM. So we'll, we'll be hearing a lot about CalAIM, but I, I guess I just want to push on that question of changing how we pay. So is that on the right track? I mean, what they're basically doing is getting CMS approval to offer a comprehensive but at the same time limited set of social supports um, through Medicaid managed care plans, but, you know, working closely with community partners. So does that meet the bill or are you talking about something different? To me, when I look at CalAIM, I say this is redefining what we mean by healthcare. That a provider in the Medicaid space in California, which we call Medi-Cal, can write a prescription for rent or a prescription for food fundamentally changes what we are paying for. And that's the way to begin to actually broaden this net. Now, there's a counter argument, which you you could make, which just says, well, look, let's not do it this way. Let's do it the way it's done in Sweden or Germany or France. Let's, you know, instead of asking doctors or the healthcare system to provide social services, create a social safety net that does that. And, you know, frankly, 40 years ago, we kind of had that, um, but that's gone. I don't think it's so easy to rebuild it. So I think for now, using the CalAIM approach is a really great model. And you're going to see it. We now have four states, um, Massachusetts, Arizona, and Oregon, as well as California. 
And I think you're going to see, you know, the New York uh, 1115 waiver should be decided very soon. It may be already done, but it hasn't been public. Um, that's also very progressive. So states are getting on board, and it's partly because CMS is sending the message loud and clear that we have got to think about social determinants. We want to be thinking about more holistic care. Let's figure out how to move upstream. And indeed, these you know this other 80%, it really matters in terms of health outcomes. And I've got to give, you've got to say, you know, CMS is really out front here particularly CMMI, and asking the nation to rethink what it means by healthcare. And that's super exciting. What I'm also hearing is, for different reasons, uptake of these policies in red and blue states. And Mandy Cohen came on to talk a little bit about how that played out in North Carolina. And it's something I'm going to focus on and try to really tease out is, can this be a bipartisan issue? I think it can. But I think that the taglines will probably be different in, in each of those kinds of states. Yeah. So Arizona is a good example. I agree with you. I think this is a bipartisan issue. If you look in the mental health space, the most progressive, most consequential legislation of the last 50 years was the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Uh, and it was uh, it was really pushed most of all by a very conservative senator from Texas, um, Cornyn, who um, decided to use that act to greatly expand what we're doing for the Certified Community Behavioral Health Centers, the CCBHCs, which will be this whole new national network like the FQHCs are for primary care. We'll now have a parallel program funded with $9 billion uh, through CMS um, that will do this for people with serious mental illness, holistic care, crisis care, looking at substance use disorder in this population and providing care there. It is pretty extensive and progressive and exciting. That is a bipartisan effort. And it's been that way from the very beginning. So I don't think this one so far has fallen victim to the social values war in the way that COVID and many other parts of healthcare have. It's partly because I think when you, I learned this when I was at NIMH, when you start talking to people, everybody's got a story. And, um, Uh, It doesn't matter whether you're in a red state or a blue state or whether you're conservative or liberal. Uh, You probably got a family member who's dealt with this and you know this is a a big issue uh, that you can't, we haven't been talking about, but we need to start doing better on. So um, I I am kind of hopeful that this is a place where we can get um, combined efforts. And if you look at the states that are starting to do more progressive things, uh, that includes Texas. That includes, um, you know, well, even North Carolina. States that are not necessarily either red or blue in in a kind of conventional sense. They're not necessarily progressive anyway. So I think there's a lot a lot to be done here, and it's it bodes well that we're getting these new programs. And if you look at California again, as you know, America's coming attraction that. There is a real understanding of the importance of investing here. The problem is really on the execution side. It's not so much finding the money because I think we're spending a lot of money. It's it's paying for the things that matter and getting them done. So if you don't mind, uh, Claudia, I'll just you know what I've been doing personally on this 
um, after the book came out, I, I thought, well, we, we need a social movement. And I kind of tried to do that by starting a, a, a new publication, a nonprofit. But what I began to understand is if we really want to change outcomes here, it's going to require changing the business model. And when I began looking at this, I realized, you know, that that group of people who have serious mental illness are they're among the most expensive patients in medicine. And we're spending a ton of money on this group of patients, represent a small fraction, uh, and we're getting really bad results. And so I co-founded a company called Vana Health, which is a for-profit, which goes to payers and says, guess what? You know, 40% of your most expensive patients are people with schizophrenia, bipolar illness, or severe depression who are not getting treated. And they're costing you so much because they're in your emergency room, they're in your inpatient units, um, because they're not in care. They're not in any kind of ongoing outpatient care because they don't trust the system and they don't like the care they're getting. And you would do the same thing if you were in their position. But there's a different way to do this, right? So let us take these patients, we'll go at risk, and we'll provide them with a clubhouse and we'll provide them with a concierge coach, somebody who's from their community, who speaks their language, who can relate to them and who can build trust, who's going to help them to stay out of the emergency room and stay out of the hospital, and who will give you much better outcomes at a much lower price point. So it's a business model. I think that's the way to begin to actually change the narrative here. I'm not sure that there's legislation or that there's even a particular policy. There are policies we need to change, but most of all, we have to convince people, and by people I mean payers, both public and private, that we need to start paying for things that work that are not as expensive. So, you know, paying for coaches, paying for clubhouses, paying for um, supportive employment, which Medicaid still doesn't pay for even in California, there's not a provision for clubhouse support. I think there will be. I think we can fix that. But these are still, you know, outside of our payment model. And it's still, I'm on the board of uh, Fountain House, which is a iconic clubhouse in New York City. And, you know, we still hold galas and bake sales to try to keep the doors open in a country that's spending over $4 trillion on healthcare. That's nuts. That is absolutely preposterous. And so Vana Health is set up to say, there's a better way to do this. And to actually convince payers, and we are talking to CMS, but we're also talking to all the big uh, commercial groups, um, that we can actually do this and save you money. Uh, that's something that I think they, they just don't think about because they're so focused on how we how do we keep our inpatient unit functioning during a nursing shortage? How do we make sure our emergency rooms don't have psych patients boarded? All of that stuff, big issues, big problems. But those are all downstream. We need to move upstream and make sure that we're not just playing the sick care game, but we're actually focusing on healthcare. I'm curious how those payers are responding, both what they're excited about and what they're kind of skeptical about. Yeah, so they need to see numbers, and they are excited about the idea that this saves them money. 
right? Because this, again, we're talking, these are business decisions and they like the model. They're skeptical about how much it will save because what we'll have to do to make this work is to provide behavioral health care, which they haven't been providing. And it's really fundamental to do this. You have to have total cost of care in your budget. Most payers use a carve out for behavioral health. It's a real problem on the public side. Like in California, behavioral health is completely carved out. So you're not going to save any, or you'll save very little, I think, in the behavioral health side of your budget. You may not even save, you may spend more there. But the big expense, when you look at total cost of care, it's about 80%, even for people with SMI, is the medical side. That's where all the money's going. So what you're really trying to do here is to bring down the costs from diabetes, hypertension, and most of all COPD in this population. And that only makes sense if you're a payer, if you're responsible for the whole Megillah. That doesn't really work if you're um, just doing behavioral health way, the way that many of these payers are structured. So we have to kind of create a value-based system that looks at the whole thing. I'm thinking about the commercial market and how much of that is only what we call TPO, which means that the payer is essentially just paying bills for an employer, but isn't actually at risk. And you don't see a lot of risk bearing in the way you're describing on the commercial side. Where you do see it is in Medicare Advantage and Medicaid. Does that mean those are your two focused populations? Or is there also possibility on the commercial side? So if you really want to go after SMI, that's what I want to do here. You, You really need to be in the Medicaid space. And you also need to be talking about justice-involved people because it is the criminal justice system that's kind of the default mental health system in the United States. And that's a really interesting area because, um, you know, that's not your 80% problem. That, that In that case, it's like the 90% problem or 95%. These are people who, um, you know, are just so incredibly neglected. Um, and so that when they are... Uh, released from jail or prison, you know, they've often lost their Medicaid. They, you know, may have even lost their um, their housing. They have very little to help them on a recovery path. They become quite expensive as well. Uh, just looking at new numbers, we have a meeting about this actually today in California. It's about $100,000 per year for healthcare and, or for all in for keeping somebody in jail or prison who has a serious mental illness a little more than $100,000 a year. Um, that's not a great use of money. There's just there are ways to do this. So, so I think we have to, we have to really start thinking of, about a different model here, one based on recovery, one that's not so focused on clinics and medicines and hospitals, um, but begins to provide this whole set of services that we know are really effective, uh, but we don't pay for Yeah. I want to go back to some of the history you outlined, in part because I had an argument with my husband where he said it was Reagan that deinstitutionalized a lot of folks with mental illness. I said, no. Yes, in part in California, but really this went back to the 60s. And so I want to just kind of go back over some of that history because I think it sets up this conversation about why is it that so many people with SMI, serious mental illness, are in jail. Um, so what you describe in the book is an effort in the 60s to close psychiatric hospitals, state-run hospitals, move people into the community with the concept of social support and community support. 
Uh, but in reality, that didn't happen. The services and programs that were meant to catch them and provide what you're describing never really materialized in the way they should have. And so what we've seen is um, folks that were previously in we don't want to go back to the psychiatric hospital model, but they were previously in a place where they were getting some level of treatment and care. Now they're living on the streets or they're in jail. And so what you described in the book is that, and talked about earlier, is that 10 times as many people with SMI are in jail as are in public hospitals. And so I think that reflects still a, a, a very substantial dearth of, of options but it also reflects a system where confronted with someone, let's say, who's um, having a crisis in a downtown area, our response is to arrest them. So uh, if we're going to give people a different option, we have to first stop arresting them <laughs> and we have to decriminalize having a, a mental illness. What are approaches that seem to work in avoiding arrest and jailing of people who have mental illness? Probably the best examples we have are the communities that have built out very robust crisis intervention systems for people with behavioral health problems. I look at Tucson and Phoenix as probably some of the best examples. Um, they've made big investments there. And it's 988 is kind of the, you know, that's the tagline for a lot of this. It's the new phone number that you're supposed to call instead of calling 911 and getting police and fire here you get you get someone who's a mental health expert it's not just the the call number though you need both the number to call but you need someone to come and a place to go and building out that continuum hasn't happened in very many places yet i use tucson and phoenix as examples where they have the whole they have all three parts of this um, which is what you really need. Um, if 988 is the place to call, then um, someone to come is not police uh, or fire or even a medical surgical ambulance. It's going to be a van with a uh, social worker, a nurse, a peer, uh, and they have the digital connection to your medical records and to backup for uh, health problems, as well as connection to criminal justice in case they need that, which they may. Uh, and then where do you go? Well, you don't go to the emergency room. You go to either what we call a psych ER or a, uh, it's the, the term of art now is crisis stabilization unit, where you can stay for 23 hours. Um, and if you do need more extensive care, then often there's an adjacent unit where you can stay for three to seven days, something like that. All this is to say that I think the whole criminalization of mental illness is a fixable problem. And I think it's a particularly American problem. So it's not an issue so much in other countries. It tells you that there are other ways to do this. Um, and in fact, it's not what we used to do. It's really a problem of our own making that came with the um, the deinstitutionalization really turned into transinstitutionalization. We defunded our, our state hospitals and our local mental health facilities, and we put huge amounts of funding into the criminal justice system to build jails and prisons. And as often happens, people with serious mental illness, who I argue are kind of our untouchables, our Dalits, they are going to be the victims of any of these massive social changes. And so um, 
the reality, as you said, is that uh, prisons and jails have become our default mental health institutions. The irony of this too, which very few people want to talk about, is that the remaining mental health institutions are really only just for forensic patients. They are, in fact, just jails. There are people who are there because of some criminal charge and can't be uh, can't be adjudicated in the courts uh, because they have a mental illness, and so they sit often for years and decades in the the few beds that we have left. About thirty four thousand beds in the United States um, in our state hospital system, our public hospital system. Now, just to be clear. If anybody's listening to this and thinks that, well, we only have 34,000 beds, there are lots of private hospitals that have grown up in the meantime to fill some of that gap. And, and you know, some of those are quite profitable, but they are only there for people who have an ability to pay, who have commercial insurance or some other way to support. And often the hospitalization is limited to seven days or 14 days, which is maybe not even adequate to get the medications right. I've worked in Medicaid policy off and on for 20 years. I didn't know that Medicaid couldn't pay for patient care in standalone psych hospitals. So I went back and looked at that issue just this morning. I was like, you know, this was in the book, but I've never heard about this. And wow, what a, I mean, I think there's a lot of great stuff going on in Medicaid. It looks like some states have requested waivers of that. Um, I think we'll see more of that in New York and other places. But for listeners out there, um, what this means is that for the remaining beds, which are typically in standalone psych hospitals, Medicaid and Medicaid patients don't have access to that. They can still refer patients to uh, psych units within a community hospital, but that kind of um, cuts off a huge uh, potential treatment path uh, for our most vulnerable folks. So it's uh, thank you for sharing that. I had no idea. Uh, I should have known, but I didn't know. Yeah, that actually was the vehicle for deinstitutionalization. The I, it's called the IMD exclusion, meant, and it was set up during the Johnson administration with the beginning of Medicaid and Medicare, that you couldn't use Medicaid dollars for any, um, any psychiatric hospital with more than 16 beds. So there are some 15-bed units that have been developed that can't take Medicaid, but anything like a state institution that would have... 3,000 beds. No, you couldn't use Medicaid uh, for any part of that. And that was the end of the state hospital system. That's really what, what killed it. So it was intentional. And it was because they set off at the beginning to say, we need a different way. We want to move everybody to the community. Let's empty out the hospitals. And um, it was remarkably successful, a 95% reduction in state hospital beds from that period of time. And the, I think the intentions were very honorable. They were to take people out of settings where they were often not receiving the care they needed to, with the hope that they would be in more home-based community settings with a full spectrum. So that's a beautiful image. It just didn't happen. So I think this is our chance to actually deliver on it now. Yeah. So, so but to that point, Claudia, I think it's a really important moment for us to learn our history, to actually go back and say... Like we, we've been here before because with the CCBHCs creating a national network for mental health care based in the community, um, tying that to all kinds of other services, these are all great stuff. I remember that. Like that's what we did with the 
Community Mental Health Act of 1963. And that's what, you know, was really the, the, the heart and soul of mental health care in the 60s and 70s were these community-based systems. They weren't quite right for a lot of reasons. And, and we need to go back and learn that history so we don't repeat the same mistakes. When you look carefully at the numbers for the studies that were done, you know, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s to understand that period, only about 10% of the people seen in the community mental health centers in those days had a diagnosis of serious mental illness. Most of it were people, you know, the, the staff of those places, and I was one of them. I used to work in those places. Like I grew up in the community mental health system. We were, you know, interested in dynamic psychotherapy. We were interested in doing long-term psychotherapy with people who had far less intensive problems. And uh, it was a, you know, a true miscarriage of justice in terms of what those um, clinics were meant to do. Um, they were also very isolated from other things happening in the same community. They didn't have the tie-in to the whole nonprofit community behavioral health organization system. So that when they failed after when Reagan pulled the plug, there was no there was no parachute there. There's like no safety net around them. So we we want to and we're making that mistake by far once again. These are just not being set up in a way that can be sustainable yet. So we have to think through very carefully, how do we do this in a way that ensures they'll be around in 20 and 30 years and that's fully integrated with healthcare broadly. So they're using the same medical records. They're using um, kind of a health home model. Um, and hey, why aren't we building a learning healthcare system? Why are we doing this in 430 different clinics without saying, no, this is a system of care. And every clinic is going to learn from every other clinic. And every new piece of data that we get in Texas can be used in Connecticut. Um, and because that's really what this has to do is to figure out what are the best practices. So it's a fantastic opportunity to get it right and to build what I like to call the Camelot for mental health. It's just not happening. There's no leadership yet. Uh, and there's no, because again, the federal government has not been a driver here since 19, the 1960s. So if it's going to get back in the game, it's going to have to have people who understand what it takes to hold the states and counties accountable. It's going to require people who have thought through what does a learning healthcare system look like. Um, and it's going to require bringing in the people you most want to serve. So this isn't just totally a top-down operation the way it was in the 1960s. Lots of lessons to be learned from that time and, and place. I put a question out to Twitter this morning about questions that I should ask you. And one came from Lucia Savage, who you may know, who's one of the nation's experts in privacy. And she said, is it possible for Silicon Valley to meet its goals and growth and delivering impactful products and also preserve privacy? That's a huge question. And I guess I'd just love for you to reflect a little bit on if we're not going to trade off one baby for the other, how is that going to happen? How are we going to be able to deliver meaningful products and, and, and generate more trust and not violate privacy? What, what, what any, any clues in that area? Well, I think it is the right question, right? You know, and it's it's very much like what we talk about with drug development. You want to look at both efficacy and safety. And here, safety is largely 
issues around privacy and, and how you protect that. But even beyond privacy, I think that, that your word is the right one. It's, it's trust. How do you build trust? I should say, I think the community of people in the mental health space don't have a lot of trust in the current system and they, the real life uh, system of care, um, particularly those who need mental health services the most are often the most distrustful of what they are able to receive and which is one of the reasons they don't actually get care. And we know that probably, you know, somewhere between 50 and 60% of people who should and could be in care are not. And one of the reasons is they don't like the system of care that's there. So I think her question's right. It's like we had to protect privacy. We also have to figure out how to deliver care that people actually want. So they not only trust it, but they engage with it. And the engagement part is really, you know, the great neglected piece of mental health care. It's very different than what you see with cancer, heart disease, cardiology, where or, um, um, uh, endocrinology, where the sicker you are, the more likely you'll be in care. In this space, the sicker you are, the by far away, it's less likely that you're going to receive care or even seek care. And so, we want to we want to think through this whole engagement piece, both trust, but also providing something that people will actually engage with. And until we do that, it's going to be really hard to bend the curve. But we got to do both. Thank you so much for joining. It's been um, a pleasure. And I'm as hopeful as you are that we'll see a bending of this curve and it's going to take all of us to do it. So thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you, Claudia. It's a real pleasure talking to you. I am so grateful to Tom for joining us on The Other 80. What's really stuck with me after our conversation is the importance of learning from history because we've been here before. We had the same good ideas that we did not succeed at funding and scaling. We simply cannot let that happen again. Now is the moment to fund and scale the integrated models that we know work. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for links to Vanna Health, details about the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, and Tom's book, Healing. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams.